0: Folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, bear politics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Viseblog Blog and author of A Special Relationship Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at VisitView.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word.blogspot, again, all one word.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the Farm Podcast, all one word, at store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month in the lowest tier. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guest and content. And all access patrons get um, the monthly Zoom party uh, updates on all the ongoing investigations I'm doing and a lot of other goodies. So definitely give that a thought as well. All right today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm though i've already appeared on his show he is the host of my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and the mastermind behind alt media united folks i give you guys the great mark palmer mark thank you so much for dropping by this afternoon sir thank you
1: so much it's a pleasure to be here steven and uh like you mentioned you joined me on my show so thank you for doing that and uh thanks for inviting me here it's a pleasure
0: Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Uh, For those of you familiar with Mark, you know he hails from New England and is deeply fascinated by the region. So we're going to use that as a launching point. Specifically, we are going to get into his own journey of discovery in New Haven. From there, we're going to consider the strange history of Yale University and the most notorious fraternity of them all from there. And finally, we are going to consider some of the other esoteric orders of play in this strange spot. It's going to be quite a journey, guys. So let us start the show. your journey into sacred geometry and mystical topology started with a personal experience and it involved a burial mound using a modern day city green right
1: absolutely yeah i was uh i was a college student in new haven at a community college sort of right on the doorstep of yale's campus and uh I found myself more interested in exploring the city than I did the classes themselves. So in between classes, I would just sort of uh, wander around and look at all the interesting architecture, the graffiti and everything in between. And I started to magnetize to this one particular location in the New Haven green. And it's a pretty expansive green. Most town greens are rather small. This one is very large. It's probably the size of two football fields. And on the western half of the park are two churches. And those two churches are very old. Okay, there used to be a third, but there are only two now. And behind those churches used to stand Connecticut's state courthouse when New Haven was considered on par with Hartford because there was a time when New Haven was considered the capital of this state or, or like the sister capital to the state. So I, I found a deep little niche there and I sort of wiggled my way in and I would sit down and read books on this little bench. And what I mean by that is th- the park was full of homeless people. And it really, I mean, it wasn't at that age, it wasn't really a big deal. I was in, excited at the prospect of <laughs> talking to strange people. You know, I'd spent my whole life sort of in the boundaries of modern suburbia, school, sports, you know, that whole thing. I'd never really interacted with people who were on the fringes of society. So I found my little niche there. I, I would go in between classes and just hang out and read the books that I cared about uh, on the green. And it was like a magnetic, it was like a magnetic phenomena. I don't really understand any other way to explain it because I would sit there and it was like what I was reading about would come to me. Right. So I'll give you an example. There are others, but this one's the most prominent. I was reading The Way of the Shaman, um, another book that I was also reading at the time less impactful was, uh, Carlos Castaneda's first book, you know, teachings of Don Juan. So I'm reading books like that. And coincidentally enough, who walks into my life, but a man from that exact area that Carlos writes about the Southwest United States and someone who's versed in plant medicine and native American culture. So that's why I say it's kind of like a magnetic spot because you know, here I am reading these books about indigenous culture and shamanism. And, you know, what are the odds that a guy all the way from Arizona, you know, walks over to me and happened to be wearing a shirt that made the conversation uh, easy for him to start. I had a sitting bowl t-shirt. Sitting Bull was on my shirt. So he was like, oh, you, you know, this kid must know a thing or two about Indians. Let's talk to him. So we talked and smoked a, a joint together and that's when he told me that hey you know you're sitting on a graveyard right now and i'm like what <laughs> he's like yeah this whole park's a graveyard i'm like really he's like yeah you never been inside of those churches i'm like uh well i heard about it so apparently the two churches that are standing there now to this day have mo- um what it was it's like a not a mausoleum. It, it could like catacombs be
0: catacombs or something. Like catacomb, that? yes.
1: Oh. Yeah, basically like an indoor cemetery, right? With cement and very creepy stuff. Uh, and it's sort of like a Halloween thing. People get tours on Halloween through that area.
0: I mean, it's like kind of underneath the green, like between the two churches. Is like you're saying, kind of like a catacomb or something like that. It's, no, it's
1: right. like the basement of of one of the churches. So oh. underneath the the first church, there's um there's sort of like a catacomb basement so that i had been mildly familiar with but i thought it was just like you know one or two people i didn't realize it was like you know the whole town of new haven buried their people here for hundreds of years Uh, and that's the case so there's this sort of um, graveyard energy there and uh yeah i mean there's so much more i don't want to just keep babbling on but uh, uh new haven is the home oh, of his so first graveyard so we'll stop there for now
0: No, that's great so you basically had a guy from like arizona just like kind of randomly show up smoke a joint with you and i explained to you the significance of the graveyard there
1: <laughs> mm. well and and he didn't just show up uh you know he he mentioned that amongst many other things and he still lives in new haven he Actually moved from. Uh, He
0: was like in the process of moving then. I tell
1: you. Yeah, he was he was homeless at the time. Um, but yeah, he was in the process of moving, and he moved for spiritual reasons. He found out about skull and bones and their practices, and he found out that they had desecrated the grave of Geronimo, uh, one of the most well-known Native Americans in American history. Someone who. Historically was never killed in battle. He died in captivity. He, you know, never surrendered until like the ultimate uh, you know, last <laughs> the last stand kind of thing. So Geronimo had a badass reputation for being a tough dude. And I think when Amos found out what happened to him posthumously, it really upset him naturally. Um So for people who don't know, Prescott Bush, the great grand or the grandfather of George Bush Jr., our most recent Bush president, he went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma in the 1800s where Geronimo happened to be buried and they robbed him and two other people who may or may not have been a part of skull and bones, robbed the grave of Geronimo, taking only the skull and femur bones. And bringing them back as a trophy to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, you know, desecrating the grave of a very important historical figure, a very important American Indian. And Amos was very upset by that. So every day at noon, he would stand in front of the Skull and Bones headquarters, their little base, and he would scream Geronimo's name like a warrior. As loud as he could, it would, it would ring through the campus. You know, this campus is built with like, you know, uh, all these like fancy walls and big towers and stuff. So that his voice really, yeah. I was going to say,
0: imagine the acoustics are phenomenal.
1: (laughs) Right. So, so that was that was a powerful experience as a seventeen-year-old man. You know, to become friends with Amos to learn this story. He even took me to the tomb and and screamed Geronimo. You know, asked me to scream with him. You know, so it was very real for me. You know, it was much more than just like, oh, this guy taught me a bunch of things and I believe him. You know, uh, I had no reason to distrust him. And there were there were a few spiritual instances that confirmed uh, the trust that I had in Amos and the information that he shared with me. Uh, But that was just the tip of the iceberg, you know, like I, I learned about that stuff from Amos and I continued on with my life. And I've always been interested in this type of research and the world of supernatural, paranormal, corruption, conspiracy, all of those fields. And I feel like Skull and Bones as a fraternity is interesting because they're sort of a nexus point between the material and the spiritual—they're—they're they're manipulating more than just politics and economies. They're—they're they're manipulating the geomagnetic energy of the planet, uh, or, or at least of this country. And I hope we can get to some of that today. But yeah, that's where it started with me uh, in an ancient barrier burial ground, having no idea that that's where it was, uh, and then you know learning so much since. I mean, it's been more than 10 years since i met amos uh and i actually just saw him a few weeks ago so i've remained friends with him uh throughout this whole time and he's taught me many things but uh, the majority of my research on skull and bones has happened in the past few months uh, and i have to give a big big shout out to chris milligan at Trine day for making it even possible i mean he published anthony sutton's work which sort of was like the little hint that got me interested in this stuff and then he also published Fleshing Out Skull and Bones which is a very comprehensive guide to Skull and Bones written by multiple different authors so I will be citing that as a source if anybody is interested in uh, my bibliography and they want to do their own research those two books would be uh, number one on the list.
0: All right. So, uh, did your friendship with Amos, like, I uh, play into what you described to me as your encounter with Geronimo's spirit? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, and can you elaborate on that? What do you mean?
0: I don't know, man. It was your. Uh, you said you. Uh, how did you? You uh, said you encountered Geronimo's spirit.
1: Yeah. I mean. Maybe I was speaking in a sort of uh, prose there, but yeah, this is
0: from your notes, man. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I just the way you phrase that is, I, I believe I'm referring to, and I mean, geez, I couldn't. I hope I'm not forgetting something. No, I'm not forgetting anything. What I'm referring to is is the is not like a paranormal experience or like a ghost sighting or anything like that. What I'm experiencing is. The connection, okay, between myself and an ancestor. I'm not an American Indian. I was born, you know, with mutt European genetics. So on paper, you're going to say, okay, how are you going to connect with Geronimo, right? He's an American Indian. You're not. Um, But love knows no bounds. And I feel an altruistic love for the entire planet. And I think the Native American. Um, saga, as tragic as it is, needs to be understood by the whole world. Tragically, it is not. It's been manipulated out of our history and censored out of our history. So that's Geronimo's spirit. Geronimo's spirit is the warrior inside of me fighting to get this information to the right people so that we don't have um, more needless suffering, right? I mean, we we can't erase or correct the pain uh, that's been done, but we can sort of bring the awareness so that we're all in an equal understanding of what really went down. I mean, Columbus and that whole story and the Thanksgiving pilgrimage and all of that. You know, it's it's full of half truths and truths and deceptive sort of turning people a certain way me i i've always loved nature i've always loved animals i've always loved human beings as a part of nature when we're not screwing with nature um so yeah that's geronimo's spirit to me the the spirit of of the american indian of the red man of the person who was completely taken out of their homeland i mean here in connecticut there were hundreds of different tribes most of them are now in the midwest because they have been uh, pushed out they got moved out they got relocated so that's Geronimo's spirit i maybe i phrased it in in a way that seemed like i was talking about some kind of like astral out of body thing no i no um it's it's really more of a it's 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 more of a prayer thing, you know, like Amos taught me the power of prayer. And that might sound cliche or corny to someone who didn't grow up in a situation like me. But for people who don't know, I grew up in a situation where Catholicism was encouraged, but in a very lazy way. And what that did was it bred it bred a sort of contempt in me, a contempt for religion and a contempt for ignorance so i started to become atheistic i started to think of the world as cold and and scientific and that was a deception that was a manipulation that i wasn't aware of until i met amos until i realized what it meant to be a true human being until i realized what it meant to pray so You know, I started off as a young man who didn't believe in God, as a young man who didn't believe in prayer, as a young man who didn't believe in himself. And now I'm a man who knows the truth about God, knows the truth about prayer, and knows myself. So that's the spirit of Geronimo, I guess.
0: (laughs) That's well said, man. Thank you. So uh, let's get into the founding of New Haven. So first off, what is its... Official origin story. So
1: the official origin is, uh, it's a little, it's a little, uh, thick. Okay. <laughs> These guys, New Haven, it was the wealthiest colony at the time of its founding, right? So we have Theophilus Eaton, John Davenport, and John Brockett. These guys are sort of like the the main dudes. John Brockett isn't remembered nearly as much as the other two, uh, but these three men created what is now New Haven. It was a constitutional monarchy uh, founded uh, under a Puritan mindset, a Puritanical religion, uh, and they lasted from 1638 to 1664 in that condition. It was not only the wealthiest colony, but it was probably the least lucky colony. They had the worst luck of all the colonies. Because keep in mind at that time, starting a colony was like starting a company. You know, you, you either failed and lost your capital or you succeeded and you have a successful venture. And the New Haven colony failed miserably a couple of times. Um, one of the more interesting stories of their failure was, or is remembered as the New Haven ghost ship. They, um, they basically used everything they could muster up from the area that was worth anything and said, okay, we're going to take all these goods and we're going to trade them, you know, in Massachusetts or Virginia. Right. And they send this ship off with, I mean, pretty much 80% of what these poor people had in New Haven. They send it off on this ship that never makes it to its destination. Uh, and uh, I guess a few days later, people saw a vision of this ship floating in the sky over New Haven. It was a New Haven ghost ship. Most, I think most of the towns saw it. You could go into folklore books and find little stories here and there of the phantom ship of New Haven. But it's sort of a irony, right? They started with all this money, and then they just shipped it all away <laughs> on a ghost ship. So the ghost ship is is a fascinating part of New Haven's history, but it's also, like I said, very ironic. You know, they were this very wealthy colony and they just shipped off all their wealth for really no gain. You know, obviously they didn't intend on the ship never coming back, uh, but that just shows, you know, their luck, I guess. Now, I should rewind a little bit. The first person to ever technically lay eyes on new england what is now called new england was giovanni cabot right cabot john cabot this guy uh, i think they have a cheese company named after him now the cabot family became pretty wealthy up in canada um and he discovered new england on saint john the baptist day which is interesting um because saint john will come back up In new haven's history um and then dutch ship captain adrian block is the first european to set sights on new haven and he notes that there are these big red mountain faces on either side of new haven so i believe he named it something like red rocks you know um but new Haven was eventually chosen as the name and etymologically Haven can go back to a couple different places, but I mean, essentially it means new heaven, right? And this fits into this new Atlantean mindset that a lot of the colonists had, which was like, Hey, we're going to a place where you know, humanity hasn't been, and it's the Garden of Eden, and it's this, you know, holy land that we can now, you know, conquer, you know, fresh off of the, the Inquisition and the Catholic Church versus the Islam and everything that was going on in Europe, you know, Spain, the Dutch, these guys, they just wanted to get their own land and not fight over, you know, the same land anymore obviously everybody knows the whole Columbus thing. Oh, I'm going to find the Western route to India. Well, he never found that (laughs) obviously. And, um, and I think that it could be that they never intended on finding India. Yes. They wanted to find an Eastern sort of way to attack the Muslims, right. By going through the Pacific ocean, they could go up the, the Strait of whatever and attack the Muslims from the East. That's the concept that we're given. Oh, they're looking for the the trading route. It would be quicker. Well, I think there's a little bit of a conspiracy there that we can sift out. Are you familiar with diffusionism?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So diffusionism is the, the theory that, you know, the people living here in North America did not just come over the Bering Strait. There were many, many years or thousands of years of migrations from different parts of the world, whether it was Africa, Northern Europe or Asia, many different cultures came and colonized and settled here in North and South America way before 1492. Now to Spanish, right? They hired Columbus to go and find this place. Well, the Spanish had just finished defeating the barb the barbarians, right. From the Barbary coast of uh, Africa. And you can go and look, you know, now <laughs> the, those, a lot of those places in Africa are deserted to this day. Like they never recovered. The Spanish destroyed their civilizations. Um, but these men were, and women were, were traders. They were sailors. They sailed the high seas. So my, intuition and i'm sure i'm not the only person who's thought this is that the spanish had some information from these people they were just fighting the barbarians the moors the these traders who you know traveled around the world on ships i think they had some information about the caribbean and south america obviously columbus didn't do so well he got sent back to spain and irons but um The point is, is we're given this very fairy tale version of American colonial history. Most people don't even realize that New Haven was its own colony. I mean, you know, we're given this sort of uh, fairy tale version of it—that the Plymouth Colony and everything going on in Massachusetts is all that mattered. No, not really. I mean, and even that is full of lies. You know, this idea that oh, um, the Native Americans. We all got along and, you know, everybody broke bread at Thanksgiving and shared their stories. And I mean, that that was partly true for the first winter when the Europeans couldn't survive without the help of the Native Americans. But once the Europeans figured out what they needed to do to survive, they told the natives to F off and and a lot of times sold them into slavery. Right. So you'd have people in Massachusetts enslaving The natives from up there and selling them in Virginia, hence why a lot of the Native Americans today are having a hard time tracing their roots, you know, tracing their ancestry because they've been shipped all over the place. You know, they go from one state to another, to another, to another. And how do you figure out, you know, who your great, great, great grandpa was when you've had that many, you know, tragic turnovers in your life? So. I don't want to beat the American Indian drum too much because I'm just a mere white guy, <laughs> just a mutt. But uh, but I, I do have an incredible, incredible respect for the Native American Indian, their culture, their way of life, their way of thinking. Uh, I understand that there are biases and there are maybe even like... Ha- things that have been manipulated about their culture. But I think Skull and Bones and groups like Skull and Bones have contributed to that. And I hope we can get to that a little later on in this discussion. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's the beginning of New Haven, a very wealthy place. And Yale, to this day, is an extremely wealthy university. So although New Haven wasn't as successful as it would have liked to have been as a colony, That ultimately didn't matter. New Haven was absorbed by the Connecticut colony, which was successful. And um, one more thing I should note before we totally leave the subject of the New Haven colony is that the New Haven colony was not limited to the boundaries of what is now considered New Haven. They had territory as far south as Philadelphia. So the New Haven colony was involved in the Philadelphia history, right? This very important, important saga of history, as far as American history goes, is what was going on in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia still to this day is one of the most energetic and symbolic places in this country, you know, from the the center of the city, shaped like a circle, from all the living artwork that's all around it. So when I found out that the, the New Haven colony was connected to Philadelphia. I was like, wow, this is really cool because a lot of the research that inspired me to get into this in the first place was based in Philadelphia. Guys like Michael Wan and Ross Ben who are decoding their own particular areas. That's what got me involved in this. And the same group of Native Americans that lived in Pennsylvania, lived in Connecticut and Massachusetts. It was a very mixed bag. You know, there weren't such fixed borders like there are today um, they were very able in a lot of cases to trade and mingle with each other not in all cases there were feuds and not all native americans got along or even liked each other they're certainly evil towards one another you know i don't want to cast some kind of um <laughs> some some kind of like rosy-eyed view of this stuff but the lenape the Lenape people are a very interesting group of Native Americans. Um, they had an economy that sold wampum, and this wampum was found all the way up in Maine, all the way down in Florida, all the way out to Wisconsin, all the way down to Louisiana. So that, to me, suggests that we weren't dealing with you know people who fought each other with sticks and you know didn't understand the greater world around them like these people were trading across the country across the continent they knew you know they were a lot smarter than we're told so that's that's my two cents on native americans and american indians rather um i think that the the history has been obfuscated and it's very simple to understand why it's political. It's all political. I mean, they want to maintain control over this uh, property that they've stolen. Right. So at first it was, well, the native Indians, they're, they're heathens. They don't believe in God. They don't deserve this godly land. Now it's "Oh, well, they, you know, they, they're drunks and they're not um, socially mobile. They're not uh, striving for excellence and they're stuck in these reservations. So, you know, they're just sort of pitied, you know, which is really the opposite of of what we should be doing. We should be uh, trying our best to understand their culture and integrate it in a way that doesn't delude either side. Uh, but that's humanity. You know, We we tend to smash each other over the head before we shake each other's hands.
0: Do you uh, want to get into the uh, to New Haven's uh, Magic Nine Square Grid now?
1: Yeah. So, like I said, New Haven was founded as a constitutional monarchy by Puritans, and what's interesting about Puritans are you know they seem to be some of the most superstitious people, right? Like that they, they were very much against the witches, and but they themselves are practicing magic you know superstitious people we tend to think don't practice magic i would argue that the people who are more superstitious are the people who are more accustomed to magic or more familiar they see it more they're exposed to it hence why they're superstitious um and also there's this sort of under ground of puritan that believes in the christian kabbalah or at least some elements of it right there's this sort of interplay going on with puritans pilgrims and these groups of religious extremists right because that's what america was it was just a group of religious extremists it's just they weren't all a part of the same group Right. That was the whole catch. It's like, get out of England. We don't want you here anymore because you're not, you don't fall in line. You know, go take your weird beliefs somewhere else. So, all these people came and mixed all their weird beliefs together here in, in New England and the early Americas. But what we have to understand is those cultures, those European cultures that settled here, were pagan in the sense of, you know, Worshipping the land and following the old ways. And we can argue, others have, that the Native Americans would have resonated with that. They would have probably had, you know, some similarities there between beliefs, right? Because going with diffusionism, we're told that it's possible that the Native Americans would have been. Educated by Northern Europeans themselves, trading with the Vikings, trading with the Scandinavians. You think it stopped at goods and commerce? No, they traded ideas. They traded rituals. They traded concepts. So I don't think that, you know, the pagan practices of like the Maypole ceremony that um, Thomas Morton put on in Marymount, Massachusetts, I don't think the Native Americans were opposed to it. As a matter of fact, they joined in. That was one of the big turning points in the history of America was the Maypole Marymount situation. This guy, Thomas Morton, he set up a Maypole for people who don't know that happens in May, of course. And it's just like a long stick, chop all the branches off of a pine tree, and then you put the pine tree up. And uh, fix something to the top. And that's the maypole, right? You do sort of dance around it. Everybody goes in a circle around the maypole. And I guess the Native Americans were involved. Thomas Morton invited them to be a part of it. And, you know, they were fornicating and uh, partying and doing all this stuff that the more conservative Englishmen in the colonies probably were very upset about. And then, of course, Thomas Morton believed in the Second Amendment before there was a Second Amendment, and he taught the Native Americans how to shoot guns, and he gave them guns and probably in exchange to sleep with their women. So, you know, this is a major turning point. In the colonies history, because now we have the Native Americans who are no longer uh, subject to, you know, whatever the Europeans will is, because now they can fight back right equally. Um, So that was sort of a long ways away from your question. But I I promise I'm getting to a point here. My point is that there are very deep pagan roots here. In New England, although the people who migrated here, for the most part, were outwardly religious in a monotheistic sense, they had mystical and occult beliefs within that monotheism, whether they were aware of it or not, it was just a part of their culture. And one thing that was very much a part of English culture is the concept of the fairgrounds, right? This sort of monthly or annually, you know, annual meeting place where everybody in town gets together and celebrates whatever the deity of the month is, or the deity of the day, you know, whatever particular time of year it is, there's a deity to be celebrating. And these fairgrounds would be set up in nine square grid arrangements, just like the modern city of New Haven is arranged in a nine-square grid, and it started off in a much more rudimentary, simple nine-square, and as urban development evolved in New Haven, the nine-square became sort of like a bisected nine-square where each individual square has a line through it, right, a street, Um except for one, and that is the center. That's the green. There's a road that goes down the middle, but that is like the kind of the axis of the entire um, square. It's not just bisecting the one square, like in all the other squares. So we have this center green. All the people are buried there. Oh, I didn't even tell you how many. 600,000 people are said to be, or I'm sorry, there I go with the autistic numbers. 6,000, 6,000, much less than 600,000. 6,000 people. still
0: a pretty good amount. I mean, I imagine, yeah. them, I mean, especially the large area you're talking about.
1: It's it's not a particularly large area for 6,000 people. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, they're packed in there pretty deeply. and um, And it's actually funny. I remember where the 100,000 thing comes from. So, New Haven was built... The, like I said, in that nine square arrangement, but the center square was built so that exactly 144,000 people could fit standing shoulder to shoulder in the green. Why is that? Well, in the Bible, book of Revelations, it talks about 144,000 souls being saved by God on the final day of judgment. So this was, you know, the the millenary religion was ingrained in the psyche of the early American. They were all, you know, waiting for the apocalypse. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a a time in American history where a group of people didn't think the apocalypse was imminent. It, It seems like it's a part of the fabric of our American psyche, this idea that, you know, the apocalypse is coming, God's judgment and I mean, right down to the the finding and the founding of this land, it sort of fits into certain prophecies as well. So, I think they they built the city in a nine square grid for many different reasons: tradition, of course; ease of function, of course; but also as a way to spiral down and anchor the energy that they were hoping to utilize to make their colony more successful. And that is the energy of Saturn. Why is that? Well, I've done a little bit of math. I've looked at the map. I've looked at the old maps. I've looked at some new maps. I've looked at the city itself from the ground. And I always wondered why the ninth square was not in a numerical position. So what do I mean by that? So if you were to number the squares in a nine square grid, you would get one in the top left box and you would get nine in the bottom right hand corner box, right? That would just be numerical order. Well, when we look at New Haven, we see that the ninth square is not in that position numerically. It's not reversed. It's not you know in any order. It's actually in the bottom center square of the ninth square. Now, at first, I thought this was a mistake. I thought maybe it was something to do with the fact that in the 1600s, Magnetic North was in a different position. So they would show it in a different position on the map where it would be on the western side of the map rather than the northern side of the map right we We see the North as the top of the map nowadays, but back then the map would have been oriented to the left half of the page as the the northern half of the page. so I started to wonder like why would they put the ninth square there? Is this a mistake? Does this have to do with like some kind of city zoning thing where it used to be the eighth square and then they named it the ninth square well. I then found this thing about magic squares. And when you put numbers one through nine in a nine by nine, or I'm sorry, three by three square box, you get only one sequence that equals a sort of, uh, I forget the right term for it, but you get the same sum no matter which numbers you add up, right? So you have all your numbers in your three by three box and, you know, one line equals nine, another line equals nine. You're just doing addition, right? You're taking the top three squares and you're saying, okay, this number plus this number plus this number equals nine. And no matter which numbers you pick in whichever order, they're all going to equal the same number. So when you put one through nine in the three by three box, you get the new the sum of fifteen. No matter which way you put it, it's fifteen. And uh, this is probably sounds like alphabet soup right now or number soup. I apologize. I don't have a like a some a visual to show you right now uh, for this audio episode. But when you arrange the numbers of the magic square. Over the New Haven city plan, you get exactly what I'm describing, this magic square arrangement where it starts with a four, then a nine, then a two, then a three, five, seven, eight, one, six. This would be the order that you would get to add up to all 15, no matter what angle you approached the square. And one plus five equals six. Six is Saturn. Saturn is the sixth planet from the sun that's kind of what i was getting at earlier with this sort of anchoring energy down into the grid you know it seems like they're trying to call in that saturnian energy not to mention you know your dead bodies underneath the green and skeletons and whatnot
0: no, this is fascinating, man. Um, is there any other Saturnine symbolism you uh discerned in New Haven? And uh also I know you had mentioned Satan Satan's axis as well.
1: Yeah, so what's interesting about and there is more Saturn Saturnian energy in New Haven, we can examine, uh, but I do want to bring up Satan's axes because Yale is one of nine Ivy League. Schools. I believe there's nine in total. There might be a few more, but the majority of these Ivy League schools are all along the Satan's axes. Now you're saying, well, okay, that's probably coincidental for people who don't know what Satan's axes is. It's a, a term that was used in the colonial days to describe everything west of what had been settled. So there was a line from New Orleans to Boston, right? That, that would be the extreme of the line. Boston would be the farthest north in the U.S., and then New Orleans would be the furthest south. But in between, if you drew a straight line in between New Orleans and Boston, <laughs> call it a coincidence, But you're going to run that line through Providence, Rhode Island, New Haven, Connecticut, New York City, Trenton, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, and then, of course, uh, New Orleans, and maybe even Mobile, Alabama. I'm not sure uh, as well about my southern geography. But that in itself, to me, is not a coincidence. You might argue that, well, okay, that's just how history worked. They were building from the coast westward, so naturally there was sort of a line that formed. Well, yeah, but here's the other thing. In Mexico, we have a pyramid called Teotihuacan, and if you drew a straight line between Teotihuacan and Boston, New Orleans would still be on that line. And so would every other college on the line. So it doesn't uh, change the position of the line. Really what I'm saying is that if we extend that Satan's Axis line past New Orleans and past Boston, it connects to even more interesting locations around the world. The Teotihuacan Pyramid, Stonehenge in uh, the UK. So I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a planned geomantic spell, because human beings live on the coast. The coast is the most important political territory that a country can have. You know, a landlocked country is nowhere near as powerful as a country with a coast. Let alone two coasts, or you know, you know, uh, all coasts. That would probably make them an island, which is not as powerful. But either way. Uh, this is, you know, we're talking about empire building. We're talking about nation building. We're talking about very smart men who wanted to create an empire. And I don't think it was an accident that they chose to build the majority of the East Coast cities along this ley line. Now, why is it a ley line? I'm not an expert on ley lines as far as determining whether they're there or not. I defer to Peter shampoo. He's the expert that I learned about this from. So if anybody's interested in learning more about this, uh, he calls it the Acadian ley line because it also connects to some major Acadian cultural centers in the world and the Acadian culture, which is a very ancient culture. Um, So yeah, it's, it's an interesting arrangement. You know, anybody can go and just do a Google search and search up the Ivy league schools and you'll find a map and you'll see Penn state, Princeton, Columbia, Yale, Brown, Harvard. They're all in this straight line. It's like, it just, it's kind of baffling when you look at it, you know, it's like, and then you also have the concept of the Ivy, right? What is Ivy? Ivy is this long, you know, vine that just keeps on climbing and climbing and climbing. What What is this group of people doing? They're climbing like a vine to the top uh, and squeezing the reins of power, you know, the same way a vine climbs to the top of a tree and then takes it over, you know. If a vine is successful, the tree will not be, right? So that's kind of what I think of this is like human beings, we're the tree of life and we've let this vine of, evil sort of slide up our trunk and it's making its way for the top and we got to sort of do what we can uh, before it's too late. But you asked me about Saturnian energy in New Haven. And I mentioned earlier that New Haven has the first cemetery in the United States. Now, people in Virginia or uh, older colonies are going to get mad and say, no, that's not true. Well, technically, this is the first cemetery of its kind. Now, let me explain. This Grove Street Cemetery is the first Garden of the Dead. (laughs) That's that's what they called it when it was built, the Garden of the Dead. And the reason why they called it the Garden of the Dead was because it was the first uh, cemetery that wasn't totally just like bodies buried in a pile. You know, each person had their own plot. It was sort of like a royalty thing. Like I'm sure royalty had their own separate burial plots. So it's sort of like we see that this aristocrat class sort of rising, and and instead of having just like one royal palace with one royal burying ground, well, if you have an aristocrat class, you need the aristocrat cemetery. So that's what we have here. We have this sort of cemetery where everybody gets their own plot there's a sidewalk in between each plot each headstone is an ornate you know piece of art and obelisks and tombs and really interesting interesting artwork the um the architect who built the archway also has some strange connections um around the world he's actually the the main architect behind several different buildings the u.s federal building in new york city uh, and he also built the skull and bones tomb right so there's this sort of uh, group of architects who are involved in these projects uh, whether it's building the skull and bones tomb the cemetery um, government buildings even the wadsworth athenium museum where thousands of different artifacts from all over the world are kept. Um, you know, this is, this cemetery is, it's interesting, you know, it's been called like a city of the dead, right? And not just because of the sidewalks that individuate the plots, but because there are trees and it's meant to feel like you're in a very peaceful very calm city, almost.
0: <laughs> All right, I got a couple of like interesting things here to add from my own research. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the location of New Haven, it's uh, fairly close to the 42nd uh, parallel, which in some accounts is held to be um, the so-called uh, psychic highway. And that's due to sort of the uh, migration in the United States, and how it was, um, you know, kind of uh, followed by a lot of, uh, you know, at the time, fringe religious movements. I mean, many of them sort of remained fringe religious movements. But there's a lot of um, interesting cities along the 42nd. Boston, of course, was like the first major one founded. There's also Buffalo a good chunk of the um 42nd cuts through upstate new york which was uh, a big part of the burned over district during the second great awakening um you know this is kind of the whole region where spiritualism and mormonism and uh, the shakers and a lot of uh, these other kind of traditions caught on um and then kind of going further um westward it goes right through sort of the area with the erie canal and. um and through I believe, like Detroit, Chicago, a good chunk of southern Wisconsin, like around Milwaukee and so forth. So it's, you know, really fascinating. I mean, um, uh, New York was right, probably again, um, you know, upstate New York was sort of like the first uh Proto, I guess you could say, kind of new age Mecca. I mean, I suppose you could go back even further and say Boston was sort of the OG one and that sort of broader region in New mm-hmm. England. But um then sort of from there, I mean Chicago became like a, a really big spot too, towards the late 19th, early 20th century, also sort of around the Detroit region. Um, You know, it didn't really kind of depart from the 42nd until later on when you see a lot of the stuff kind of taking root in San Francisco. Um, But yeah, it's just really fascinating. And I mean, even, you know, when you see things like, uh, you know, in the case of southern Wisconsin, there was actually, I think to this day, still, there was a pretty vibrant a uh, spiritualist movement that uh, came from a lot of the migrants uh, from upstate new york i mean they had the only spiritualist yeah. college uh, in the entire country uh, there were several well, and
1: and, that and before came. that it was the transcendentalist movement too yeah I've-
0: yeah well the transcendentalist movement yeah kind of sprung up around this like whole area too but see okay here's like another thing though that's really interesting about this okay so the 42nd Um, When you go back towards Europe, it cuts right through um, the Pyrenees uh, mountain range, and this is a really interesting area. The Pyrenees mountain range was the historic border um, between France and Spain. I mean, it, it still is essentially to this day. And so on, you know, the French side of the country, I mean, you have like, uh, pretty much like the whole kind of Cathar like region, you know, René's Le Chateau and what have you is like kind of in this whole sort of region and what have you. And then um, the southern side of the Pyrenees is uh, Basque country, Catalanian, you know, kind of area. Uh, Was it uh, Girona, I think, G-I-R-O-N-A. Um, is right there it was a a major city for a lot of the spanish jews uh, for many years and it played a significant role in the development of the zohar and a lot of the other uh, major strands of the kabbalah it was really more or less like the uh, kabbalah capital of uh, europe for um at least i mean probably 200 years or so um there's also the Galicia region uh, on the spanish side which is really interesting that was Allegedly, um, the uh, area that the uh, Celts originated from before they migrated over <coughs> into, um, you know, the uh, British Isles. Uh, it's also supposedly where the grimoire, the book of um, Saint-Syrian, that's how it's pronounced, I came from, which became eventually a really um, popular grimoire in South America, Mexico, Central America, places like that. Um, but it's supposed be. Been-
1: It's interesting you you bring up grimoire because when you started talking about France and the Pyrenees, it reminded me of, so I recently, and this connects to to New England. I recently was in Mm. Pennsylvania down in uh, Lancaster County where they have a, a lot of Amish, right? And what fascinates me the most about the Amish is their folk magic. And a lot of that stems from exactly where you're describing along this 42nd parallel uh, on the border between France and Spain and the border between France and Switzerland, which I don't know if that's also on the 42nd. But uh, these two areas were sort of like melting pots in Europe, where Puritans and uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians of all different denominations were sort of blending their mystical ideas with one another. And then um, emigrating out to the U.S., where, yes, they sort of spread. But it's interesting you bring up New Haven in conjunction with the 42nd parallel. My, my instincts would not have brought that because I've always looked at the 41st parallel as like closer and more interesting to New Haven's story. But you are right in a way because Hartford is on the 42nd or close enough. And Hartford has been sort of like the big brother to New Haven. Throughout history, and also uh, the more influential of the two, uh, Hartford is known as like the insurance capital of the East Coast. And that's mostly because a lot of the piracy and privateering and the shipping of goods and whaling was centered out of Hartford and New Haven. Uh, a lot of the privateers that were going out to the Indies and, you know, causing trouble and fighting the Spanish and all this stuff, they were. New Englanders. They were people who immigrated from Europe with all these funky ideas and then started wailing. But yeah, it is, a, you know, there's so many connections. I think some people probably think, like, what, is it, what do ley lines have to do with anything? Well, what, what's really become fascinating for me about ley lines is their ability to function as sort of like rivers of thought, rivers of human energy. Because it's human energy that's being, uh, that's traveling along these ley lines over and over and over and over, making this lasting impression that affects generations um, in the future.
0: Well, I mean, another thing, too, that's sort of interesting about, like, the region around the Pyrenees, I mean, some of the um, theories that have been put forward about, like, you know, a few of the regions there that have generated a lot of speculation, like bernays Le chateau and um, uh, all the renovations Santier did there and what have you to the church and so forth. Now, uh, this author, Patrice Chaplin, has written a couple of like really interesting books. Uh, she'd spent quite a bit of time in the region researching this and had worked with several of the other researchers uh, who had subsequently got a lot more uh, credits than she has, though she probably uh, deserved it more for some of uh, her uh, footwork that she had done earlier on the whole region. But anyway, to make a long story short uh, in her premise, part of the renovations done at Renée's Le Chateau and um you know, several of the other regions uh, have been done essentially to build uh, these towers, um, you know, because that was really the significant thing that uh, Satya had set up in that area was the tower, not so much what the things that he had done to the church. But the, uh, you know, and there had already been some of these structures put up like in Girona and some of the other areas around the Pyrenees. And it was essentially, again, you know, what you're saying to kind of harness some of this energy off of like the way lines and so forth. So, I mean, I find it like fascinating that um, it seems like, especially, there was a lot of effort put forward to try and, um, uh, you know, take advantage of the energy from that specific region. Um, and one other thing, too, I wanted to mention, too, there was the old saying, what is it, in Arcadia ego, um, and in Arcadia I am. Supposedly, that actually also originated from the Pyrenees region. Uh, because it was kind of seen as uh, one of the like modern manifestations of Arcadia, but um, yeah, case- I'd be
1: interested to to trace that Arcadian ley line and see if it curves towards the Pyrenees. i mean it it curves into the Stonehenge area, so an eighth berry, so it's not yeah, yeah it would yet. be
0: fascinating, but I mean, yeah, certainly, I mean, whenever you see the Arcadia reference, I mean that's usually a sign, you know that it was uh, it was a significant spot. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, Newport Tower comes to mind in this area is you know, possibly um, built in that same style or with that same intention of tapping into the ley lines. But it's interesting to note, you know, the most prominent schools of the you know East Coast establishment—they're centered along this energy line, and uh, you know, a lot of the schools across the United States were founded in some way by one of these primary Ivy league schools, you know, uh, many of the the first presidents and uh, founders of, you know, colleges like the university of California or Stanford or, you know, places that are now maybe pushing the envelope further than MIT or Yale, you know, they've, they were the, the predecessors of that, so I, I don't, I don't mean to to generalize too too much, but we can find a connection, you know, in skull and bones to John Hopkins University, Carnegie, Cornell, the University of California. I mean, just those alone, <laughs> from one guy, Timothy Dwight, right? Timothy Dwight was, uh, or I'm sorry, Daniel Gilman. Timothy Dwight was a influential in, in the American Psychological Association. But Daniel Gilman, he left Skull and Bones and went and founded all these other colleges. And it seems to me like there's a focus on anthropology. There's a focus on gathering all of these relics from pre-Columbian, whatever, from pre-colonial times. And hiding it you know there's this stuff about the giants and i know you were just exploring the hopewell adena mound area uh, in ohio and you also went to wisconsin i think recently steven so you know there are there are all these mounds that i've been learning about that were destroyed uh, you have the whole michigan relics and even the university of michigan is very interesting i mean they're one of the older universities in the country and uh and yeah it just it seems to me like whether it was political whether it was religious whether it was a, through a secret society or through a boys club of any kind there was a concerted effort to take the actual history of the American Indian and hide it from people so that they could r- establish those land claims you know without any uh, maybe reasons to to think twice
0: all right folks i think this is a, a good point here to uh sign off for now uh this has been uh, the first part of this discussion with mark i'm gonna have the second part of it up uh, in the subscriber section here in a couple of weeks Uh, There's actually quite a bit more to go. Uh, We went for nearly three hours with this. Uh, There's a lot of juicy topics here in the second half, especially as we begin our discussion proper about skull and bones. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, You don't want to miss the second installment. And with that, I will wrap off for now. Again, thank you guys as always for listening. And as always, good night and good luck to you all.
2: Up. out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing up doo bleep got juice in it swallow what I'm about to spit done got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the Gulf J my people there they feeling me down low skin a more characters than Stephen King said I'm just working at the quarry y'all I ain't in a hurry y'all Baby, Pick me up out here with my wiki up. Stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that bigger rap. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out, cause they not let the wolves out. Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline, you feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Catapult with santa and wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle While the micro can't patrol it off From Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it Vato about the Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash Honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? We're talking by high A-Z BMG. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UABs. Officer, excuse me, please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on FS I sing my and blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just that one thing That ain't too clear I said people always bitching About the government here But that war. In Our whole civilization, what?